I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Before we start this podcast, I wanted to let you know about Little Tummy, the first cold press organic baby food delivery company. Unlike most pouches on the market, their baby food is not heat processed and every ingredient has a purpose, hand selected by paediatricians to introduce your baby to fresh, authentic tastes from early on. All of us mothers want the best for our children and I remember making purees from scratch for my children until late in the night when really I should have been sleeping. Which is why I love Little Tummy, a great life hack for parents who can get delicious tasting food made with love delivered every or every other week. And best of all, they're giving our listeners a whopping 50% off their first order. Just go to littletummy.co, there's no UK in there, and add THE PARENTHOOD, all one word in capital letters, as a discount code. Thank you, Little Tummy. Hello and welcome to The Parenthood. There's a lot of pressure to be a good mother nowadays, and that's a good thing. If it makes us better parents, if we raise healthy, happy, well-balanced children, that pressure is positive. But today, that pressure to be a good mother often morphs into pressure to be a perfect mother. And this, as well as being unachievable, can also end up being far from a good thing for both us and our children. My guest today is Zoe Vlasky, a coach, meditation teacher, writer, podcaster, and mother who suffered from depression and anxiety in her early years and today writes about the tools she uses on a daily basis to make her life more balanced and herself happier. She argues that becoming a mother is the perfect time to tackle those feelings of fear, doubt and insecurity. I'm so aware that my daughter won't do what I say, but copy what I do, she writes. If I want her to be happy, secure and confident, I have to show her what that looks like. Zoe, thank you so much for being here today. Oh, I'm delighted. Thank you for having me. I do love your writing, I, your blog in particular. I, I feel that it is so wise. Instead of looking through it, I think, yes, yes, abs- this makes total sense. So thank you for, for being so open and accessible with your writing. Oh, thank you. And I sometimes say it's hard-won wisdom. Like I had to go through a lot to get some of the lessons that I... I'm able to live in my own life and teach today. So it means a lot to hear that it's reaching people and it resonates because it wasn't easy to to learn some of these things. Well, I mean, I guess wisdom never is easily come by. You know, anyone who's wise has, has usually lived some kind of life that, you know, has taught them those those skills. Exactly. I'd like to talk about the word perfect, which is sort of the center point of our discussion today. And how, certainly for me, its meaning has changed. I remember when I was little, perfect did mean perfect. It meant, oh, I'd love to be perfect. Like that girl is just perfect. And then I think as I got a bit older, got into my teens, I'd sort of use the word perfect slightly through gritted teeth. And if I described someone as perfect, they were generally a bit annoying too, just a bit smug. And then as I've transitioned into a mother, I've realized that perfection, I think, is actually really toxic. It's unhealthy in so many different ways. Is this something you see reflected in sort of lots of new mothers, that understanding that actually perfection isn't such a good thing? Or is it still a bit of an alien concept to people? I think perfectionism is is quite misunderstood. Like people often think that perfectionism is about how we present, maybe how we look, maybe how our houses look, maybe how we want our children to look. My understanding of perfectionism through my own recovery, I call myself a recovering perfectionist and still am to this day, my gosh. My understanding is that is that really this strive that we have to be perfect or to be something different than we are is really about not feeling good enough. 
So even though we might not think, you know, a lot of clients say to me, I can't be a perfectionist. I have a messy house or I can't be a perfectionist because my wardrobe isn't ordered by colour. And I think there's that sense that that's what it is, that this perfectionism drives like this orderliness on the outside. My view of perfectionism is that it's, it's often internal and it's often feeling that unless we do something better or different or be different than who we really are, that that's not okay. So that's when you see people coming into lots of behaviours where they're, you know, always striving for more in their own lives. So they might do something and then they want more, you know, so they might, you know, launch a business but decide that it's not enough. They need to get more of more clients, you know, or they might cook a meal but decide that it wasn't it wasn't enough. They should have done that differently. Mm-hmm. So what I see is this sort of this striving, this inner is an inner thing for me. And that's my experience of it was that I never felt enough. And then that spun off on loads of behaviors of, of not being able to just settle into who I was. And what that can sometimes do is then create this thing called the when then game that I like to talk about, which is, you know, when my house is tidier or when I have a bigger house or when I have a better job or when I have more balance in my life or when my children are better behaved, then I'll feel okay. Then I'll feel happy. And of course, we know that never comes. Yeah. Well, there's always another when, isn't there's there? There's always another when. And, and what that means is then we then miss out, actually, on all those imperfect, crazy moments that our lives are, are made up with. We miss them because what we're thinking about is the next thing or how it could have been better or what we did wrong instead of thinking about what we did right and that actually we're more than enough. I was listening to a podcast on happiness the other day and there was a guy who was a sort of Apple, uh, Google exec, and he said that there was definitely a correlation between the more money he had, the less happy he became. Do you think that can be translated into perfectionism, that actually you present in a certain way, you do have a sort of level of perfectionism in your life and that sort of breeds the want for more? Yeah, absolutely. So that that's bringing in this idea of external validation as well, which was my story. You know, I was a workaholic in my early 20s because I didn't feel enough on the inside. So I would get a job. I got a really good job when I was young, but it wasn't enough because I so needed that external validation, which for some people can come in the form of money. Some people can come in the form of other things. It's often materialism in my experience. Yes, yeah, so I was striving, always striving for the next thing. And that puts you on a pretty uncomfortable hamster wheel mm-hmm. where actually you forget about your self-care. You forget about enjoying your life just for enjoying your life. And you are constantly, which is probably what the Google executive was referring to, because you're constantly thinking about how can I get more? Because the truth is, is that if we don't feel enough on the inside, nothing on the outside will fill that hole. And that can be quite a hard message to hear because I certainly used to believe that if I, in my, in my early 20s, it was about buying a house. I genuinely thought that if I could save up enough and buy a house, I'd feel okay. And of course, when that happened, I don't feel any different on the inside because it's an inside job. So feeling good enough and this recovering from perfectionism is really about looking at ourselves within and coming to see that we are good enough. And I've got some, you know, loads of tips that I can share about how to do that and some really interesting thoughts on how that happens generationally as well. Do you think that sort of realisation that perfectionism is a bad thing, it is toxic, often hits you when you're a mother? I feel that that's often the sort of tipping point of that realisation that life is about so much more than those consumer things there's you know yeah that you just really realize you don't need and I think often you know women I think there's a lot of pressure for mothers nowadays to be perfect and in the the bump class the antenatal classes I teach there's a lot of dialogue on sort of letting go of perfection and that is very much news to a lot of of women at this stage you know I mean there is still a lot of pressure for new mothers to be perfect nowadays isn't there yeah, and I think I think it can go one of two ways, you know, and some people, sounds like you were quite lucky, you know, you became a mother and realised what is important and being able to let go of those things and see perfection as a new light, as you're sharing as some of your, you know, the people that come to your classes, that isn't always the case. And some of the clients that come to me, it can be the absolute opposite, that actually they become a mother and they pile even more pressure on themselves than they ever have of this idea of getting it all right, 
And it's harder to do be perfect when you're a mother because suddenly you're responsible for another life. You're sleep deprived. You don't have the body that you used to have. Your hormones are raging. So suddenly this sort of what might have been just about achievable is suddenly not at all achievable. Well, I talk about this a lot with motherkind because it's something that I saw in myself and with, you know, I've worked with hundreds of of mums now is that some of those things that kept us going before we were mothers, you know, like that drive for external success, the people pleasing, the perfectionism, that in some way served us. Okay, so all these all these things are not bad in of themselves. They're normally coping tools from childhood that actually don't help us anymore. But all those things, when we become a mother, they don't work. It's really hard to be a people pleaser and a mum or a new mum. It's really hard to be in that perfectionist energy of I'm not enough. I have to do more. I have to read another book. I'm not doing it right. The book says she should sleep this long at this age and she's not. That's where a lot of the I see a lot of the anxiety comes from, a lot of the guilt, a lot of the stress, which then manifests, of course, in our in our mental health and our physical health. So I think we can we can get by with some of these behaviors. You know, they're never ideal from my perspective. But where the rubber really hits the road is when we become parents because we just can't do it. And if we don't have an understanding of what we're doing, of self-awareness and some tools to help us, that's when people can get to, you know, really tricky spots. And that's what motherkind's about. You know, you said in the intro about me, that's why I think motherhood is a perfect time to heal some of these things. And that can sound weird because it's like, well, we don't have any time when we become mums. But what I see is it all comes to the surface. All those things we've been doing to try and cope and survive that, that often got taught to us at childhood just can't work when we become mums. And to me, that's exciting because it means that we can change and we can give our children a different experience than maybe we did. One of the things you talk about quite a lot is self-compassion, which honestly, until like a few years ago, I'd never even heard that term. And I remember really having it, it was on the podcast, someone just says, you know, we often the sort of narrative we have with ourselves is the harshest narrative we have. And, you know, I definitely, I'm guilty of this. I talk to myself in a way I would never dream of talking to anyone else. Mm -hmm. You know, today, you know, went into the car, forgot my car keys. I'm like, how could you be so stupid, Marina? And there's this sort of internal dialogue that I'm having with myself that, you know, if I child or my husband or my friend did that I'd say oh it's fine just go back and get the keys but to me I'm like you stupid woman and I'd never use that language to anyone else and it really struck me that that's not okay no and this is you know you you might not call yourselves a perfectionist but to me you know that's enough of that you know an inner dialogue of that I'm not allowed to get things wrong you know, and when I do, my God, I'm going to yeah. beat myself up about that. And this is something I'm so passionate about teaching is self-kindness. It's why I called mother kind, mother kind, because what I saw is this huge challenge that we have with our internal dialogue, just as you so eloquently described, you know, when you forgot your keys. So one of the, the tips that I sometimes say to parents is in those moments where you notice you're being really hard on yourself, See if you can catch it, first step, which is awareness. And the second one is think, what would I say to a good friend I loved? And we find it so easy to find compassion for people that we love. Really easy. Just like you, you, you said, you know, if it was a friend, you'd say, God, you've got a lot on. You know, don't worry about it. You just forgot your keys. Just go and get them. We find it really easy to find those kind words and so hard often to find them for ourselves. So as I little tip is if you can't find the kindness for yourself, what to say to yourself to be kinder, think about what you would say to a friend and then see if you can say that to yourselves. But the inner critic is something that I talk about a lot. That's why I'm so passionate about meditation as well, because it's been the one thing that I found has given me some space from my raging inner critic that used to rule my life actually so yeah I'm pretty pretty passionate about that too because I, I'll, I'll often you know find myself muttering to myself like in that kind of situation and then of course your children are overhearing they're hearing the way that you're talking to yourself and you're teaching them that this is an acceptable way to talk to someone which obviously it's not and we all know it's not so I guess that's another reason for sort of just trying to rein it in even though you think it's only me it's fine I can talk to myself how I want it actually is much more insidious and, and negative than 
potentially we give it credit for absolutely there's a couple of reasons that it's i find it so toxic that you know really critical harsh self-talk the first one is is our children don't copy what we say they really don't what they do is they they embody on a conscious and a subconscious level who we are and what we do and they're watching how we treat ourselves so they're watching what happens when we make a mistake and they'll notice because they're incredibly instinctive they'll notice our body language change even so what we really want to be teaching our children of course which is which comes from us first is that we're all imperfect we all make mistakes and this is of course what we say to our children right who wouldn't say that you know but actually that that lesson won't get integrated into who they are and their subconscious unless they see us really living that so that's one thing that's really important and a reason and a driver and sometimes I say if you can't do it for you do it for them Mm -hmm. and the second reason is that actually we sometimes think that being harsh on ourselves beating ourselves up internally is going to make us better somehow that it's going to make us to be able to be a better mum or perform better but all the studies show the absolute opposite and an analogy that I like is like if you were stuck down a down a hole down a well and you started beating yourself up you would get further and further down that hole and it'd be harder and harder to get out and that's what we're doing when we make a mistake or we we fall short from this sort of unwritten expectation that we have of ourselves when we allow that critic to dominate our narrative and it is a choice which voice we listen to inside it doesn't always feel like it but it is so when we allow that critic to dominate our narrative what we're really doing is getting ourselves more and more stuck we can trigger cortisol in our body which of course triggers fight flight or freeze which can give us anxiety it can cause us to even like literally freeze so where we're being harsh to ourselves we might find it really hard to just get out of bed or get you know get the energy to get to that yoga class that you really want to get to or so it really does like everything starts from my perspective on our relationship with ourselves and that's what I think our children really learn from because my mum you know she said everything right you know she said everything right you don't need to be perfect we love you for who you are but I wasn't listening. I was watching her and she had a really tricky relationship with herself. She was very hard on herself. She was very perfectionistic. And that's what I took and became. So that's where some of my passion comes for this work. And what I do is, is really it's about, it starts with us, which is sometimes uncomfortable to hear. And we don't always want to hear it, but I think it's the truth. And, you know, all the psychotherapists, and I'm sure you're the same, the psychologists and all these you know, incredibly far wiser people than I say the same. So, yeah, it really is about starting with our relationships with ourselves, particularly that critic. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I think one of the things that there is a lot of pressure on new mothers is to look a certain way. And you know, also for their bodies to look a certain way. I, You know, whenever I talk to women and say, you you are prepared that when your baby comes out, you're still going to have a bump. And there's often sort of horror. And, you know, when will my body get back to what it was? And I think that is quite an important to be forgiving. I mean, I always do... I always talk to the girls in the bump class and just say, you know, that first shower that you have, the first time you look at yourself naked in the mirror, you're going to have a shock because your body is going to be very different from the body you thought it was and you thought it was going to be. You'll have stretch marks, you'll have a tummy, you'll have crepe papery skin, you'll have big boobs and blotchy boobs and the worst bags you've ever had under eyes. But I was like, just take a moment to think about the miracle that it produced. Like your body has has just done the most perfect thing. It's produced a child. 
And so we need to celebrate that rather than thinking what it looks like. I mean, it's like the wrapping paper of a present, isn't it? It's, it's no one's going to not like the present because the wrapping paper wasn't very nice. It's about what lies beneath, which is so, so much more important. Yeah, and it all comes back to what, you know, to what we're talking about, isn't it? Which is the, the relationship with ourselves and being kind to ourselves. You know, but unfortunately, if we've grown up with that critical voice, particularly around the externals, you know, which is what we were talking about up front, you know, and how we look feeds into a huge part of that it can be really triggering for women. And I have so much empathy and compassion for people who have always placed esteem and validation on their looks, how their body looks. It can be, as you say, a really tricky time in those first early months, years even, where our body doesn't look how it looks. But I'm always fascinated by this phrase of getting our body back. You know, I'm a coach, so I'm always interested in moving forward. And I think becoming a mother is such a it's such a transformational moment in our lives, isn't it? It's where nothing's ever going to be the same. And when we look back, nothing feels the same. Well, that was my experience. And yet with our bodies, we get obsessed about going back. And I always say, well, let's think about going forward. You know, what could your new relationship be with your body like? Could this be an opportunity to heal some issues perhaps that you've had with, with your looks? You know, how else could you learn from this experience? How could you be kinder to yourself? And that includes, you know, thinking about who you follow on social media thinking about what you allow into your subconscious about how you're supposed to look so I think everything's an opportunity because also that conversation becomes so much more important than when you have children you know we're we're then talking about the much bigger conversation about how much value you place on what you look like and I do think you know a lot of consumerism targeted towards particularly young girls says to them you know you're better if you look better. You're a better person if you look a certain way. And actually, I say better. I mean, what is this concept of beautiful? You know, really, it's just a fashion, isn't it? It's a fad. It's very different to what it was 200 years ago. And yet that narrative is so important for them because what you don't want is to, you know, have a child that really genuinely feels that people will like her better if she looks a certain way. Absolutely. And actually, you know, our whole consumerist society is set up on the when-then game. Absolutely. You know, the whole thing is, is, is yeah. you know, when you buy this, then you'll feel this. Yeah. You know, you, you must have, your hair's not good enough. You've got to have better hair, so buy this shampoo. Smooth it. Yeah. You know, it's, so I think, you know, and, and how we look absolutely plays into, plays into part of that. But it's actually a far bigger, it's a far bigger thing that, that our whole society is about. You need more than you have to be okay. And to me, that's a really toxic, you know, we talked about toxic perfectionism that absolutely plays into this concept. It's really toxic because what we're really saying is we're not enough as we are. And from that place, we're setting ourselves up for loads of behaviors that aren't, aren't going to help us ultimately. So what, what I'm really passionate about teaching the mums I work with and, you know, in, you know, being a parent myself, I work really hard to just accept and love myself as I am and to focus on progress, not perfection. You know, this idea of perfection and as you say, what is the perfect look? It doesn't exist because one person's beauty is another person's flaw. You know, and as you say, we only have to look back into history where in history having a bigger body was more beautiful because it meant you were wealthier, you could eat. You know, and being skinny was a sign of poverty. So so it just goes to show, you know, this is so in the eye of of, of how we perceive things. So it's really about being okay with ourselves. And that starts with looking at that, that inner critic that we were talking about. How important, you know, I was talking to a mother who's just given birth the other day and she's, you know, she's, she doesn't like her body at the moment. She says, you know, I'm, I'm too heavy for my liking. But she says the problem is, is that my husband kind of says, well, you shouldn't really have that extra flapjack if you want to get back into your, how important is that narrative from your partner's point of view? I mean, I think it's, listen, you know, on the one hand, if she's unhappy and she feels like she'd be happier if she was half a stone lighter, I mean, he's pointing out the obvious, isn't he? And he's like, I'm just trying to help you. I'm not criticizing you. But how important is that, you know, narrative from your, from your husband or your partner? Well, I think uh, I always say it starts with us. Okay. So if in that example, you know, she genuinely feels uncomfortable in her body, maybe she really enjoys that feeling of feeling fit and vital and she doesn't feel that at the moment I think that's really positive motivator you know to get out and push the buggy and you know feel that fresh air or that London smog you know in your in your lungs and to start to feel more vital thinking about the foods that we're eating to give us more energy I think that's really positive 
if it's about I want to get back into this size I don't feel enough because I've got this extra weight around me I don't feel lovable and I don't feel loved I think that's toxic so I think it's it always starts with us we can't really control what other people around us do even our husbands much as we'd like to they all bring their own I know it's so annoying to learn that isn't it we can't control or change another yeah so we can't you know we can't really control what a husband says to us but if we are if she's continually saying you know I want to I want to look different I want to look different I want to look different but her behavior isn't matching up with that as a coach I would find that really interesting like what's going on there Mm -hmm. I would suspect that actually she's feeling some external pressure but her instinct is to nourish herself which is why she's into the flapjack and I would say that's brilliant but it's quite an exciting time because I feel like, I don't know if you feel like this, but I just feel like there's such a, than when I was growing up or even actually when I became a mum nearly four years ago, there's such a different conversation now led by social media. You know, some real pioneers like Bryony Gordon, who I've had on the podcast and, and others who are doing brilliant things for body, body neutrality, body positivity. Um, well, even just looking in magazines and just seeing, I mean, listen, it's a way off perfect. And oh, there are a lot of sort of functioning anorexics who have a very lucrative business in terms of modelling. But you do see much, a much greater diversity of body shapes. And, you know, and I look at how my children are growing up and I think there's much more of an acceptance that different people look different and that's all fine compared to, you know, I didn't play with Barbies, but all my contemporaries did. And there was this, no one questioned that that was just a really unhealthy body image for young girls to be focusing on. It's crazy to think back, isn't it? I had Barbies and now I look at that and I think, my gosh, like what was that telling my subconscious? You know, our subconscious rules our behavior. You know, what was that telling my subconscious? Incredibly toxic and yet no one questioned it. So as you say, we're really far from perfect on this. But I feel like, I feel quite excited in terms of the way that the narrative is going. And I think that's this general sort of waking up that I'm seeing in the world that really excites me. But I think ultimately it comes back to us. You know, we are responsible for, and only we are responsible really for our own happiness, for our own health, for healing our own past and, f- and for, for how we are as, as parents. We can't, we can't blame the media and images because we, we choose in so many ways what we consume and, and the narrative that we put around that. And you're right, you know, with social media, we can choose who we follow and unfollow. And I suppose it's about thinking, does this person really make me feel good about myself? Does it make, do I look at those posts and feel happy or do I feel inadequate? Absolutely. I talk about that all the time. You know, just if, if you, if you scroll Instagram and you, and you put that phone down and you feel positive, you might feel inspired. I think it's a great thing. If you scroll Instagram and you come off and you're feeling less than, you're feeling insecure, you might be feeling a dissatisfaction with your own life. I would really ask you to question what your intention is for social media you know and that doesn't mean you have to stop social media altogether because yeah. there's a lot of practical stuff there's That's a lot right. of entertaining stuff on there there's there's all sorts but just having that kind of strength of mind to go you know what this girl with her kind of perfect holidays and her I just yeah she's not know if you or want to follow some her. of the 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 you know the parenting influences out there who put an imperfect thing out I've had lots of clients who find that just as triggering so I think it's 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 absolutely I think social media is part of our world now I I overall think it's think it's a good thing I mean, it's my personal view but I think if you have a tendency to not feeling good enough which is the theme of what we're talking about you know perfectionism people pleasing needing that external validation then I think it's your responsibility to know that about yourself and to think really consciously and mindfully about who you're following and know that it's okay to unfollow people like there's a woman that I love I absolutely love her and we're sort of friends you know she came on the podcast we're friends but I said to her recently I'm gonna have to unfollow you because I find you so eloquent and what you share is so brilliant every time I read your post I feel less than I'm comparing myself to you and it's really not good for me so I'm gonna have to unfollow you for a while until I sort out what's going on for me and what was her reaction I mean she's she's a very evolved person she was like wow yeah I didn't didn't get that you know I sometimes feel the same about your post so but but I think that's part of me taking responsibility because every time I went on it would trigger me I think god she said that brilliantly I never say it like that you know, so actually, I, I will go away and look at what's going on there for me. But for the short term, I've unfollowed her. 
And one of the things you uh, you talked about doing in the past is when you're feeling a bit vulnerable. You know, we all have those weeks where we feel like a bit wobbly. You're like, no social media this week. And I think that's really interesting that, you know, it's a challenge to be, uh, to, it's a, I think it's a really hard thing to use social media in a purely positive way. It can often make us feel a bit uncomfortable about ourselves. And so that recognition that if you are having one of those low days or wobbly days or just not feeling great about yourself weeks that you just take a step back yep yeah because it's only going to make you feel worse absolutely so everything in our lives we don't see it as they are we see it as we are so I could look at exactly the same feed on a day that I'm feeling great and find it really positive and inspiring and put my phone down and have a million ideas and feel great about it if I'm not feeling good about myself for whatever reason and I look at exactly the same feed, my mind is going to tell me different stories. It's going to tell me she's doing better than me. I'm not good enough. You know, I haven't grown enough followers on my mother kind account. I'm not on holiday enough. You know, my Jessie isn't dressed well enough. Whatever stories. So it's my responsibility. There's no change in the feed in those two scenarios because we don't see things as they are we see them as we are so it's taking that having that level of awareness and taking that responsibility so I still do that quite a lot which definitely affects my following on Motherkind because I don't post you know I don't post so regularly which a lot of our contemporaries do don't they because I will take two days where I just won't look at it if I'm feeling wobbly and I'll go within and you know get the support that I need and then when I feel better I'll go back on it and it becomes really positive experience again and this is what we need to teach our children too you know it's it's taking responsibility for ourselves you're right and not blaming everyone else no one else is going to do that rubbish on on it's their fault for posting sort of toxically perfect pictures it's actually it's in you and you get to choose it's not their fault you know, they're not responsible for your happiness. No one is responsible for your happiness apart from you. So, and that was another big lesson I had to learn, which was a hard one. But yeah, so so it's not about, you know, it's very easy when we feel uncomfortable. In fact, you know, this is sometimes what we often do is we then want to pass that pain on to another straight away in form of judgment or blame. Whereas actually what we really want to do, and it's hard and we don't, I don't always do it for sure, but is when that trigger comes up or that pain comes up, we want to be like, what's going on with me here? Because when we find ourselves judging and judging society, judging the politicians, judging, hating, you know, often there's something going on in us that we don't want to look at. So, you know, I sometimes say pain isn't a hot potato, you know, it's not something that we want to feel and then instantly give back to someone else we don't want to be a hurting person that then hurts someone else because then you're stuck in that negative cycle Mm. you've talked in your podcast and your blog about you know the fact that you have regular therapy and you have done for a while do you think there is a bit of a stigma nowadays around admitting that you need therapy yeah I don't sometimes I find questions like it's hard because I've been having therapy for 12 years so for me it feels as normal as like washing my hair do I still think there's a stigma I mean when you started what did did your friends know were you happy to share that information when I started I was young I was like 21 and I didn't tell anyone actually and was that because you felt like it was less perfect was that was it that struggle with perfection or mainly because I felt so lost I didn't even know what I would say at that point how did you get around to having therapy how uh, what was so I you know had a really lovely childhood in lots of ways my family looked you know on the outside we looked pretty perfect the reality was on the inside is that there was some you know emotional challenges with with all of us all four of us my brother my mum dad and I and yeah there was a crisis that happened in our family when I was 20 a big crisis actually that really threw everything up in the air in a very short space of time and now I'm saying I'm grateful for that crisis because it had to be quite dramatic to break through as you say my perfectionist coping I was a real coper a real rescuer everyone would come to me for help I always looked like I had it sorted so even as I was going through this very big crisis which you know, shook me to the core. No one would know really other than a couple of very close friends. So I was very good at wearing a mask. But because things got very dramatic quite quickly, um, the mask just didn't work anymore. So I knew I, you know, I was in a pretty bad place actually. So it wasn't like a choice. It didn't feel like a choice. I was like, I need to, 
I need to go and get help. And that was when I was 21. And I've been having therapy ever since. And some people say, well, aren't you healed yet? But my experience of it is that there's always something else that's coming up as I go through different phases of my life. And I started having intense therapy again, like weekly and quite intensive therapy when Jesse was six months, because so much another whole layer came up for me to look at. So, yeah, I think I think there definitely is still some stigma. I feel like I feel again excited because I think that's changing. I think people are talking more and more openly about therapy. I sort of think it's crazy that people think that they can survive this mad world without some external support. And I think people often think that if, if, you, if you've had an okay childhood, you don't need therapy is sometimes the narrative that we can tell ourselves. Whereas actually I see therapy as just, you know, an hour a week for someone to listen to me, to reflect back with some knowledge and insight and kindness often. You know, I've had some of the kindest therapists in the world just to help show me and to challenge some of that internal dialogue. For me, it's a really big part of self-care. Sometimes it can be scary because things get uncovered that you might not have been aware of. But again, I find that quite exciting because when we're aware of something, we can change it. It's when we're not in a aware. safe environment. It's so safe. You know, it's not like that person's going to suddenly call all your friends and go, well, did you know? You know, exactly. they're discreet. Yeah, it's really safe. You have to choose the right therapist. And I've been on a journey with that too. And I'm really passionate about helping people do that. So that's a lot of what I do in my DMs actually is refer people to different therapists that I've worked with or know or had on the podcast. Because going to Google can be you know an interesting experience for sure and so, also a recommendation from a friend doesn't mean you're necessarily going to find the right person for you absolutely so it's always about you know interviewing that person you know and you know and you're totally within your rights to say can we have a 10-15 minute chat before I start working with you and you want to be asking them you know about their style understand a bit about you know their training are they are they registered what types of things can they help with and but more than any of that it's about the energy and do you connect with that person do you feel seen by that person do you feel safe with them because that's how you're going to make the most progress is the more honest that you can be the more you can talk about parts of you that maybe you've never talked about or you really don't want to talk about often those are the parts that are going to unlock the real healing that can happen you know and that sense of freedom on the other side but you have to feel safe in order to do that and do you talk to your family about these I mean this is obviously a shared experience that triggered it with your family did they all respond in a similar way and did you all seek to resolve it in a similar way or not really some did some have to be quite careful what I'm talking about because obviously this is like my you know my family's sort of deep deep challenges but yes yes a couple of my members of my close family have gone on similar journeys to me and a couple haven't and that's totally okay deal with things in different ways absolutely but my husband has weekly therapy too so we'll sometimes have like therapy debriefs Um, and we do a lot of couples therapy and we have done in the past and I'm sure we will in the future maybe when number two comes we might need to go back into couples therapy to iron out some some bumps in the road but I'm really passionate about it I think it's I think it's really important to look at ourselves and we can't do that on our own it's just too hard we're so in our narrative And I sometimes say the fish doesn't know it's in water. You know, we're so in it and it feels so real to us, the stories that we tell ourselves and how we are and how we think we are. Like the perfectionist, people think I'm just a perfectionist. Well, actually, I would argue, no, we're not born perfectionistic, are we? Otherwise, children wouldn't learn to walk because they'd try fail and then never try again so so we're not born this way these are these are things that we did to cope and survive different things in our life that actually don't serve us anymore I think what strikes me talking to you now you're a brilliant communicator and that is something we learn and it's something we can teach and I think in a relationship when one of the real benefits about couples therapy is that it teaches you to communicate on a really good level and ultimately if you've got no communication you've got no relationship absolutely and so of all the things I want to be able to teach my children to do well and of all the things that I value on terms of cultivating with my with my husband it is the communication it all comes back down to that well we're relational beings you know and there's loads of studies coming out now about about the loneliness epidemic and what's that what that is meaning for our nervous systems and our stress you know we are social beings it's only in relative history you know nine thousand years or so that we live like we do now relatively isolated you know lots of mums in houses with their baby on their own so it's not natural so but what is natural as you say is is connecting and communicating so I'm the same you know I really want to 
help Jesse through through watching me, you know, two things. One is self awareness. The second is self empowerment, knowing that I can I can change. And the third is absolutely as you say, communication and being able to express myself in a really kind and clear way. And that includes saying no. That includes having boundaries. That includes standing up for myself. So absolutely, I totally agree. That, and couples therapy really helped us with that. Like basics that we were just not noticing that changed our marriage in like, what, 15 minutes? And it's quite empowering too. You're like, oh yes, okay. And that's totally doable rather than people think, I think people dread couple therapy or therapy in, in general think it's going to be sort of traumatic experience. But in my experience, you actually come out feeling so empowered to enrich your life. It was great. Well, we had this thing. I'll share, I'll share a little story because sometimes it's helpful to get granular and practical, isn't it? So when I was upset, I felt really abandoned by Guy, that's my husband. So I'd be like crying or, or in distress about something and he would just go off downstairs. And I'd be like enraged, like what, what is going on here? And then he would be upset and I, and, and I would go over and try and hug him and, and say, you're okay, let's talk, let's, let's connect. And he would sometimes be like, F off, like shout at me. And I would be like, more you know crying I've married the wrong person this this guy is like an animal this is horrendous so we took this to couples therapy and she said well what you're doing is Zoe you are trying to comfort Guy how you want to be comforted and Guy is trying to comfort you how he wants to be comforted he wants space to process on his own so he's giving you space because he thinks that's what you need and I was going and trying to, you know, connect with him because that's what I needed when I'm upset, whereas he wants space. So we had it totally back to front. Shoot, this came out in like 15 minutes. So now he's upset. I give him space. It feels unnatural to me to walk away to someone upset. I know that's what he needs. I'm upset. He comes and comforts me, sits with me. What do you need? How can I help? Which feels unnatural to him, but it's what we need. So that took, what, 15 minutes? And it's totally changed our marriage. Because because now we're both getting our needs met and it feels great. And it, it makes total sense. Makes of course, you look at it sense. and you think, well, how could I not have come up with that? But we didn't. And I do this. I think I was working in this field, like I was coaching and I was trained and, and I was like, oh my God, I'm embarrassed because it's so simple. <laughs> but yeah, I think, I think, you know, when he was, my story, the story I was making up was that he was abandoning me when I was upset. Now that story wasn't, wasn't true and then that was triggering some trauma and pain from my past which was getting me even more distressed so the moment I owned that understood why he was doing it that actually he was trying to be loving because that's what they did in his family that's what he needed he thought I needed space so I could see that actually he was trying to be loving misguided but you know, trying to be loving and asked for what I need you know and the therapist said that Zoe look guy in the eye tell him what you need and I said I need you to hug me when I'm upset and he went okay that was it. <laughs> so, you know, we can sometimes think about therapy as like this, you know, as you're saying, it's like big, scary, but often it's just really practical tools that can transform relationships with yourself and others, important others in your life in minutes. It's like fantastic. The best hundred pounds I've ever spent, I think. Yeah, it's so worth it. One of um, the things I really love talking about, because I think it needs to be talked about, is guilt. And what I particularly love how you talk about it is you've talked about not being afraid of it, but befriending it and understanding it. And you've talked about sort of analysing guilt. So talk to me about guilt, because it's not always such a bad thing, is it? Yeah, so the first thing that I say about guilt is what we resist persists. Okay, so if we think about a beach ball as an analogy that I use with clients often and we try and push it under the water, like go away, I don't want to feel you, I don't want you to be here, we, what tends to then happen is of course we let go and it explodes, you know, and we've all experienced moments of that explosion, right, whether it's our husband or ourselves or our kids or just, you know, having those moments of, of feeling totally out of control and I think that's because we're resisting how we feel. Mm-hmm. So, so the opposite of that, of course, is to welcome it in. So what I do when I feel guilty is I'll say, God, that's really interesting. I won't judge myself. This is on a really good day, by the way, <laughs> when I'm like feeling connected and on top of my game. I'll be like, that's really interesting, which is a nice phrase to use because it's quite light. It's really interesting that I'm feeling guilty about this. I wonder what's going on. And so, yeah, I sort of think guilt fits into two categories 
the first one is unreasonable guilt and this links back to perfectionism and this this in my experience with clients makes about 90 percent of parental guilt which is that we have created this story of how things should be and when we don't match up to that invisible high standard we've created for ourselves or maybe society's put on ourselves or we've absorbed from social media then we feel guilty so example of this is like often with food you hear it oh I'm such a bad mum she had pasta three times you know actually you've created an expectation of yourself that you're going to give your child this organic varied diet seven days a week well I would say that's a really high expectation particularly if you're working or you have other children so I would say that's really unreasonable guilt so then it would be looking where do you feel guilty and what's your expectation you know, so, so a lot of mums I work with say, I feel so guilty because I only do pick up one day a week, for example. And I say, but you work four days. So how is that ever going to be different? You've put this expectation on yourself that you're somehow going to be able to do pick up and drop off every day and get into the office at eight. It's not going to work. So either you have to accept that you've made that choice, be okay with that, or you're going to have to change something. So, so, so it's only by looking at it. Otherwise, that that client in particular, I'm thinking of, would have been left with this perpetual feeling of guilt for years. You know, what she actually did was asked her employer to change her hours a little bit. So she now does two pickups and drop-offs, which she's decided feels great for her, and she doesn't feel guilty on the days that she isn't doing it. Because children pick up on that guilt. Absolutely, yeah, I see it the whole time with mothers who work more than they want to, and their children will milk it. Yeah. Not because they really need you, but because they know that it provokes a response. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, quite, that's quite a complex one in, in child <laughs> psychology in terms of what's going on there. But for sure, like children, guilt is really coming back to, to what we've talked about. It's not feeling good enough. And that's what children will pick up on ultimately. Um, and sometimes, you know, if we feel perpetually guilty, we can overcompensate. Our boundaries can get wobbly. You know, if we feel guilty, yeah, okay, you can have the other toy, which we all do from time to time, you know, but if we're doing that every day, that's an interesting lesson that we're teaching our children about how much we respect ourselves and what we, that we do, what we say we do, which of course can make children feel unsafe, which then creates them into create coping tools, some of which is what we've been talking about, perfectionism, people pleasing. So that's an interesting little circle that can sometimes sometimes happen. That's why I say it's really important not to accept. I think there's this dialogue that, you know, when you give birth, you give birth to the guilt and that's okay. I, I actually feel quite strongly that it's not okay to feel perpetually guilty and that we can we can use that feeling of guilt to look within, to work out what's going on. Often in my experiences, it's too high expectations on ourselves another word of which is is toxic perfectionism you know expecting too much of ourselves and then feeling guilty when we fall short the other the other 10 percent is what i call reasonable guilt so you know i had a client who was who was feeling really guilty we got on the phone one day because she'd been like late for pickup three times that week like pretty late and she said i feel really guilty and i said i said yeah and she was like what didn't think you were going to say that and I said well you know let's look at what's going on there you know and actually what she was doing is she was cramming her day her boundaries were not in place so she was going to meetings that she was never going to make back for pick up on time so actually it's no fault of her own but she was in her people pleaser Mm. she wasn't able to say no she wasn't feeling enough at work you know this is after a bit of a conversation we uncovered some of this she wasn't feeling enough at work so it was overcompensating and the impact was that her little boy was stood at the store gates for, for, for a while you know on his own three times that week and I said I, I think you need to make some changes here so and she did which ultimately made her feel way happier in all areas of her life so sometimes we do want to look at our guilt you know and if if we if we are feeling like actually that's not who I want to be as a parent so sometimes it's about knowing what our values are as a parent. And if we're not living those values because of some behaviours of our own, through no fault of our own often, but still our responsibility to look at, then that's definitely something we want to look at. But that only makes 10%. You know, by far the lion's share is this 90% of where we're just feeling guilty for no reason. 
I've got one thing I feel really guilty of, and I don't know what category it <laughs> fits in. All right, let me catch you. <laughs> so my daughter the other day, you know, we are recording this in June. It's about to be the end of the summer term. She goes, Mommy, my school shoes are getting a bit small. And then my husband was like, oh, let's buy you some new school shoes. And I was like, oh, I was like, Iona, if you can keep those school shoes till the end of term, I'll give you five pounds. Because <laughs> I was like, her feet are going to grow another size over the over the school holidays. And, and Ben was like, your you know the structure of her feet that's terrible she can't wear too small shoes I'm like or are they just a little bit tight and for the next two weeks they'll be fine and I don't have to spend another 40 quid on a new pair of shoes what do you think well reasonable or unreasonable (laughs) (laughs) well let's look at the facts you know can she walk in the shoes yeah does she does she complain every time her foot hits the floor about the shoes no okay so so this isn't about you know a fundamental self-care issue of your child is the first thing that I would want to uncover (laughs) the only thing I would say is the is the giving of the five pounds you know I think Mm -hmm. I think that's quite interesting because because what what's the sort of message that you might be giving her I'd rather give five pounds to her than 40 quid on a new pair of shoes no you're right I mean I guess it's just a simple way of having that conversation rather than going well you know we could just wait and 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 see how you feel and sometimes especially with her it needs to be a bit more instant yeah I mean I guess I was being a bit lazy I get it I do stuff like that you know all the time I, and I definitely you know say if you do this you can have this I'm I am so far from a perfect parent but ultimately but, that's life isn't it you know yeah. you we work so that we earn we, money so you know that there we, is that's life yeah absolutely absolutely and as you say in that moment so I would say that you're you know it sounds to me like that's unreasonable Gil it sounds like you know and if you wanted to you know if it was Jesse I'd probably and if, if it was on my mind I'd probably go back and speak to her about it again with you know when I had some time with her I'd probably talk to her about you know the value of money and sometimes we have to feel uncomfortable sometimes you know in our you know in our clothes or in our shoes and and until we can afford to get something new so I'd, I'd probably see it as an opportunity to you know teach her a bit about about patience about gratitude pragmatism um, pragmatism you know exactly like everything can be used as lesson but for sure it sounds like that's unreasonable I think if her toes were curling and she was hobbling and you said <laughs> no and you had the means to buy the shoes which again is is an important thing thing here because not everyone can just go and buy a new pair of shoes of course then I would say well maybe that would fit the other category but the fact that she's able to go to school pretty happily <laughs> yeah. no she skips she skips down the road right, and she's like skipping yeah. down the road then yeah. then yeah that's unreasonable guilt yeah and you're actually teaching her a pretty powerful lesson that we don't just want things and get them but also I do think that sort of idea of kind of pain and sort of being a bit more hardcore I find that my children get like a tiny little scratch and they're like ow ow I'm like can we just talk about this sort of pain is it a one or is it a ten because if it's a ten I really need to or an eight I need to do something about it but you know do you want to go to hospital but you know for them they don't they don't know that scale particularly well and and like you said you know if it means the kind of ball, like she hates going to the shoe shop and to having her shoes try, you know, she, I know she wouldn't like to spend her afternoon in that. She'd rather be out in the park climbing trees. So I guess it's about just showing them that balance and saying, well, listen, how painful are these shoes? Is it worth spending an afternoon in a boring shoe shop? Or is it worth you just being okay about it? And we just try and push it till the end of term. Yeah, absolutely. And, and another approach with that instance is, is you know, it, allowing her to make that decision. You know, this is going to be the this is going to be the trade off that you're going to have to make. You know, I could get you no no shoes early, but I mean, no new shoes in September, maybe. And that I remember from last year, that was something you really enjoyed going to get them before you knew term. You know, so sometimes it's about giving the responsibility back to them as well, which is which is how we grow esteem. Mm-hmm. You've talked about medication, med- medication, meditation. <laughs> meditation um sometimes the two go together (laughs) (laughs) well exactly how much how much is medicate meditation medication you talked about it as like every mum's secret weapon I, Mm. I I don't meditate I've definitely done a little bit of sort of mindfulness and I think that actually that can come in in many different forms but why why is that so important how does that help you yeah, well, the first thing, and it's a really important point you raise, is when I talk about meditation, I'm, I'm talking about it in its broadest sense. So what I'm really talking about is having some awareness of what's going on inside our brains. 
And that can be through mindfulness, as you say, on the go, or it can be through like a slightly more formal practice, which is what lots of people think about when they think about meditation, isn't it? So you're sitting cross-legged with your... Yeah, and I need to find 20 minutes a day and that's just impossible. And if I can't do it every day, it doesn't count. I think that's like some of the unhelpful messages that we've had in the media about, about meditation. I really just see it as a way to to get to know my mind in the same way that it's really important to get to know my body in the same way it's really important to get to know my children my husband my friend you know I have to get to know the nature of my mind because without without knowing the nature of my mind I am totally at the mercy of it and you know when I was younger as I was describing you know in my 20s when I had a really hard time my voice was critical 99.9% of the time it was telling me untruths about myself and the world but I was listening to it I was totally over identified with it so when my mind when a thought would flash into my mind she doesn't like you I would believe that as the truth I wouldn't even question it to me now this sounds crazy but you know I would I just would be like, yeah, she doesn't like me. And then I would look for evidence that that person didn't like me. And then I would either totally withdraw or I would step into my people pleaser. Neither of which is, is great behavior and caused me, caused me loads of problems. Now, those thoughts still come in. Of course they do. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't over-identify with it. That voice is, that critical voice is much quieter through meditation. And I just know it's a thought. So I used to think that my thoughts were me and I used to think that my thoughts were all real. Now I know they're just thoughts. We have 80,000 of them a day on average. And I think that, you know, I used to say 70,000 of mine were just bonkers. It's probably about half that now. So the freedom that comes from knowing that I can have all these thoughts going on, you know, some, sometimes I have them going on when I'm in this scenario. You're not saying enough. You're not saying it right. And in the past, that would have changed how I showed up to things. It would have changed my behavior. Whereas now I can have all those thoughts. And because what meditation really does is it, it teaches me to create some distance between the thoughts or just not over-identify with them. Then when I'm go out and about in my day, I, I take that with me. I take that muscle, that, that learning with me. So it's way, it's way easier to live. It's way easier to live when we don't over-identify with our thoughts. And meditation is the best tool that I've found to do that. And what do you, I mean, this is going to sound like a really stupid question, but what do you actually do when you meditate? Do you try and empty your brain of thoughts or do you try and engage with those thoughts? No, great question. That's a, that's a big myth. And, and, and when clients come on my coaching program, I invite them to do a little bit, two minutes of meditation every day. And, and they'll often come back and say exactly the same thing, which is, well, I just kept thinking. And I'm like, absolutely, that happens. I've been doing it 12 years, still, you know, that clearing our brain is not the goal of meditation that's actually called enlightenment and that is reserved for a very very few people who who are able to suspend those thoughts for long periods that is not what we're aiming for what we're aiming for is that we sit down and we close our eyes and all those thoughts come whoosh okay so that's really the first goal of meditation is just to realize wow there's a lot of noise up there and that noise is going on when we're going about our days when we're feeding our children when we're at pickup when we're at drop-off when we're with our husbands when we're with our friends it's just that we don't realize it as noise it's only when we stop and close our eyes or not and just realize oh my god it's really noisy if you've known and done it before and you don't believe me have a shower next time you're in the shower and notice how many voices are in the shower with you because what we realize is that when we're showering we'll often be back in yesterday We'll be in that meeting that we've got at 9am. We'll be thinking about a million things other than being just in the shower. So that's like, that's really what we're doing is we're teaching ourselves that our mind is just constantly pinging, just constantly pinging. And how does the acknowledgement of that make that noise less? Good question. Because what we do is we then, as we get into any form of practice, mindfulness or meditation, we come fully back to the moment. So we concentrate on something that isn't our thoughts. Okay. So when you said, is the goal to clear our mind? No. But the goal is, is that when you have a thought, it's to not go off on that thought. So we sometimes think about it as branches of a tree. So, you know, the thought might be, I feel really guilty about that. Okay. Now, if you're in meditation, what I would encourage you to do is to just notice that thought 
like a cloud uh, going across your going across the inside of your mind and just come back to whatever you're focusing on some people focus on a guided meditation on an app so come back to that person's voice some people focus on breath so come back to your breath some people if you're doing mindfulness will be focusing on washing their hands okay so come back to the feeling of water or um, you know whatever it is just come back to the now and then that thought's gone the next one might be about something else Okay. Whereas if we have never practiced meditation or we, you know, we have no idea about the nature of our mind, the next thought might be, I'm a rubbish mum. The next thought might be, yes, because my little girl did say to me two days ago, she hated me. The next thought might be, actually, yeah, she's right. I do. I, and I, and maybe I hate myself. The next thought might be, you know, God, I, I I'm, I'm not going to go to that thing this morning. And then suddenly our behavior has totally changed because of this one thought that was just a thought that wasn't true. Now, as we talked about earlier, if you're having that perpetually, that might be something to look at. But generally, these thoughts are just, they're just thoughts. And there's a nice analogy around, you know, thoughts are clouds. Have you heard this one? Thoughts are clouds in the sky. And, you know, we know from when we go up in an aeroplane, there's always blue above the clouds there's always that blue sky and that's like our minds you know we can always find that place of stillness if we can come back to the moment but what our minds like to do is take us forward and back and and if we go back we tend to feel depressed because we can't change anything about that we feel quite defeated disempowered and if we go forward what am I going to do next week I've got that meeting or I've got that you know, I've been called in to see the school, what's going to happen, or I've got, I'm seeing that friend that triggers me, whatever it might be, whenever we go forward, that tends to bring us feelings of anxiety. So, yeah, I mean, it's a huge topic, one I'm really passionate about, and that's why I call it Secret Weapon, because you can find total freedom. Yeah. And do you think that, I mean, looking at my life, so when I was 12 when there weren't mobile phones there was a lot more time in day-to-day for reflection and actually you know I went to a school where we went to chapel twice a day and I'm not a religious person but it was a really good time to reflect it was mm. basically sort of a primitive form of mind- or early form of mindfulness do you think that nowadays when we basically have our phones in our pockets the whole time like you know catch the tube and look down the platform and everyone is looking at their phone there's no two minutes just to be there waiting for the tube looking around or sitting at traffic lights even you know so many people I know you went to but people pick up their phone and they don't just stop and you know look at the clouds or look at what's around them I mean do you think that has the impact of that means that it is more important than ever to take a little bit of time out to yeah absolutely and that's what all the studies show so if you look at look at any studies about our level of how much we're able to concentrate on one thing you know we're way more distracted than we used to be and technology has a massive part to play and that so so does the pace of modern life you know, life has never been faster paced, even, even you know, outside cities. This isn't just something that's exclusive to, to you know, the big cities. It, life has never been faster. We've never had access to more information at the click of a button. So I think, you know, instead of blaming that, it's about knowing that and taking a bit of responsibility and there was a really really study that I found really powerful because it said that just 60 seconds a day of doing what I was describing in any way you can you know just coming back to the moment can start to rewire your brain and that could potentially be while you're brushing your teeth brushing your teeth is a mindfulness is a mindfulness um, unless you're scrolling through Instagram at the same time yeah try not to do that that's not it but but yeah teeth brushing is is something that lots of mindfulness teachers teach because it's something that we do twice a day often it's when we're doing that that the mind finds mundane tasks like that really boring so what it does is it wants to take us forward or back but of course that we, as I was describing that make can make, we're we're then at the mercy of whatever these thoughts come to us as right so that can make us feel bad sometimes good if we're thinking about reflecting on a happy memory or a good day but most of the time because of negativity bias our mind is going to focus on something bad so yeah so teeth brushing is a great one like what does it actually taste like the toothpaste in your mouth you know what does it actually feel like to feel can you feel the individual bristles going across your teeth 
you know, doing that, just focusing on that, all your attention on that for 30, 60 seconds while you're doing it can have a profound, it sounds bonkers, doesn't it? But it, the studies are there, I'm not making this stuff up, can have a profound impact on on our ability to, to not over-identify with these crazy minds that we have, or most of us have, I know I have. And if I've got listeners, you know, th- hearing this thinking, I actually, I totally get that. I love the idea of that mindfulness. Are there any apps or any tools that you would recommend? Yeah. So I use the Calm app, you know, and I'm not, I'm, I'm not an affiliate of Calm. I'm, I, I mean, I probably should be the amount I promote it. I'm quite a, um, even though I'm recovering from a lot of this stuff, I still like achievement and you can see like little green dots every day that you've done it and I really like that it really motivates me so yeah even though I teach this stuff and you know I've been doing it a while I still use I still use that app it's got it's got a 10 minute guided meditation a day and there's also loads of brilliant meditations and content in there so a lot of my clients are advised to start there there's loads of great books on mindfulness out there ways to access it there's loads online you can follow me you know on my instagram i talk about this stuff quite a lot and share some quick tips so yeah i think when you first start out i would definitely i would definitely get some support with it it's quite hard to just sit at home with nothing and say right i'm going to meditate that's when some of those challenges can come in where we we use it as another thing to beat ourselves up that we're not good at and of course that's totally not the aim well Zoe it's been really great to chat to you I've so enjoyed it you know the more uh, doing this podcast I've realized that very often really rubbish things that happen to people in their lives often make them stronger and a better person that that and that is then extended to other people and I think you're the prime example of that so thank you so much for coming to chat to me today Zoe's website is full of information so it's motherkind.co isn't it yeah, your, just your website co, yeah. and then you can get onto Zoe's Instagram from there as well and listen to the podcast the podcast is available on itunes or is yeah. it yeah yeah itunes my website and soundcloud so it's the mother kind podcast and it's full of interesting interviews you can hear how well she speaks so i'd highly recommend listening to that thank you so much oh, thank you so much and thank you all for downloading another episode of the parenthood please don't forget to subscribe rate and review us it does boost us in the podcast charts and helps new listeners find us day to day you can find out what i'm up to thinking about and recording next on instagram i'm at marina.fogel but in the meantime from zoe and me thanks for listening and goodbye 